The 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. Henning Gloystein is Director for Energy, Climate and Natural Resources at Eurasia Group based in London. He covers geopolitical risk in oil and natural gas supplies, the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, as well as green industrial trends. Prior to returning to London in 2021, Henning was based in Singapore for seven years, covering the rise of Asia to become the world's biggest consuming region of natural resources. Henning started his career in energy analysis at Commodity Pricing Agency Platts in 2007, where he was responsible for pricing European wholesale power, natural gas, coal, and carbon markets. Henning has a dual master's degree in history, politics, and science and technology from Humboldt and Technical University in Berlin. Now let's get into the episode with Henning. Welcome back, Dave, John, and Henning. Good to be back. Likewise, thank you. Yeah, that's another great episode coming at you. Henning, I thought the last podcast we did with you was exceptional, hearing what's going on in Europe. We do a lot of work in the manufacturing sector. It's rolled North America, quite frankly. And so I'm really interested because you, you will, you'll, we'll hear complaints from our Canadian or North American manufacturers about how high energy pricing is and, you know, all oh, they can't compete. And, and then I look in Europe and I look at how some of the pricing is so high and, and some of the products they're competing against our North American products, I find it quite interesting, but. Listen, where I wanted to go is what is industry doing in Europe to mitigate the high energy pricing? How are they compensated in that area? Yeah. Thanks, David. That's, it's one, yeah, it's another one of those big questions at the moment. And I know in the, in the last episode, you know, I, I voiced some optimism that they could cope and I remain optimistic that they will cope. They might even see some form of a green dividend industrially towards the middle of this decade. However middle of this decade is the important part here. It's this last year was very, very difficult. So 2022, 2023 is still going to be very difficult and 2024 is still going to be difficult because they have to mitigate these prices. And there's different ways you can do this, depending on what company you are, what, what you make and where in Europe you are. And this is where the complication starts. So the first one is you of course have to get the price down, whatever. That means you have to become more efficient by, and we've helped a lot of clients here by just actually doing sort of asking your staff to do more sensible stuff, like, you know, consuming less thermostat, thermostat down from 22 to 16 degrees, and maybe work from home a little bit more, switch off the canteen, ask people to bring lunch in, that sort of stuff, which is abnormal behavior. Now, this is short-term behavior, which companies are okay to do for a year or two, but they don't want to do this forever. Of course, and if you shut down your canteen, you're actually laying off people. So this is an issue, but every company virtually in Europe has been doing this. The other part is if you have cash, and it's a big if, and you manufacture stuff, can you invest into modernization? I.e. efficiency gains, improved insulation, modernized units, whether if you have a cracker industry, like in the big chemical or oil industry, or just a, a power generation facility, heating systems, you just modernize it if you've got cash. Or if there are subsidies for it, can you tap them? And this brings you again to some areas. In some region, regions of Europe, there are much more subsidies available than in others. And, and Big industry tends to have more cash than small industry. So I know there's been a lot of headlines around the world, like all oh, Germany and the Netherlands, they will deindustrialize because the big chemical companies will just decamp and go to China or to Texas. They won't. They, they will also invest in China and also in Texas, but they're also still investing in Europe. They might take out some of their facilities 
in areas where the energy landscape doesn't look so great. So in Germany, that southern Germany, which doesn't look that great, whereas northern Germany, offshore wind, LNG access looks fine. So they might move and shift around. They can they can spend literally billions in efficiency programs, tapping subsidies, buying an asset of an offshore wind park. They've got means. But where we worry is small to medium-sized companies. And this is a big worry because, you know, France, Germany, Italy, Netherlands, in Germany, it's the term is the same as Mittelstand, the small, medium-sized companies that produce stuff you've never heard of, but everybody uses somehow. They are normally family industries. They can't just move part of their production to, to Antwerp or Tarragona. They, they can't invest into an offshore wind park. They just receive an energy bill that's crazy high, which probably won't go down anytime soon because the energy companies have so much capital expenditure at the moment. They need to invest so much money to adjust the situation that they don't want to pass lower prices to you. So you just receive a bill and that's really high and you, you can't move. And there is a, a risk of closure of shutdowns and deindustrialization. And that requires government support at the moment. This requires government support for grants, improve your energy efficiency, for, for getting an electrolyzer, putting rooftop solar, I don't know, everything at once. And uh, this is the part that sometimes gets overlooked because the industry gets all the head. Luckily, I think it's sinking in governments that this is where there's support needed because overall, the hundreds and thousands of small companies in Europe contribute more to GDP than the few dozen of super big companies. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. You know, it, it's interesting. I don't, you, you stated so well, like, I think we're finding, and we, we work quite a bit in the SME thing sector and 90% of, of employment is in from SMEs. Like people don't realize it, how, how exactly. important they are and that they have to be taken, you know, helped out or assist in some way so they can advance. So that is happening in, in Europe to, to compensate for the high price. Yeah, to a certain extent, but yes, it is, but it's happening more in the wealthy countries than it is in the less wealthy countries. And this is actually another concern in the EU now, less wealthy countries in the EU are worried that the Dutch government and the Danish government and the German government are throwing hundreds of billions of euros at support at their small customers, at their big industries, at their household consumers subsidizing new energy with access. Everything is awesome. And uh, then other areas in, in, in the EU, geographically less positively, you know, more disadvantaged, you know, let's say they're unblocked. The governments aren't as wealthy. There's no big industry anyway. So they see this and, and think, oh, goodness me, the, the Dutch are going to outcompete us in Europe. And then the Americans come with the Inflation Reduction Act and the few factors that we have here are going to move to I don't know, Louisiana. And this is a, a valid concern because you don't want to come have an EU coming out of this that in 10 years' time, parts of Northwest Europe and maybe Iberia have totally decarbonized and there's these net zero industry clusters that are humming away beautifully, producing fantastic stuff. And other parts of Europe have sort of been left behind. It's, it's really something you want to avoid in this situation. And it still requires a lot of attention. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Dave's asked you about the, you know, how industry's responding to high pricing. Well, I, I want to sort of a parallel question. Recent events have certainly opened people's eyes to the issue of energy security. And we touched on this in, in the previous pod. We, we know that we, one, one view is that's for government to sort out 
energy security. It's not my, my problem. But what have, particularly the energy intensive industries, how are they responding to this issue of energy security? That's a really good point, and it's a very sensitive question. So I feel a little bit careful on how I say these words, but it's, uh, it's, it is important, so let's discuss it. So the, the one thing this, is, this crisis has made really obvious and screamingly obvious is that energy security is a matter of national security as well. In the case of the EU, supranational security, whatever. But I mean, yeah. you know, and that is normally something governments take over, Carol's. But of course, we have a privatized energy sector, at least semi-privatized, in which there has been historically a confluence of interests. The, and let's use the most glaring and big example of Germany here. Germany built with its big industry in cooperation with its governments, initially started by the Social Democrats during the Cold War, so a long time ago, but continued by the Conservatives. So former Chancellor Angela Merkel, she did this right through as well. There's not just a single party blaming here. They built an over-reliance on Russian fossil fuel imports. It's as simple as that. German industry financed the Nord Stream 1 and 2 to get natural gas into Germany. Interestingly, it was never about cheap natural gas. Russian natural gas was never particularly cheap. It was never much cheaper than anything else. The Russian gas was always more expensive than Henry Hope in the United States. Not much more expensive or sometimes, sorry, not, not, not cheaper than Dutch gas prices at TTF in the Netherlands or in the UK. But what it was, which is hard to remember now, it was considered reliable and there were no price spikes. And that model collapsed in 2022. The thing is though, that you buy some fossil fuels from, from autocratic governments is normal. Virtually every nation in the world does that. Maybe just look at the United States and their relationship with Saudi Arabia. It, so, but that you build a single huge reliance across all three fossil fuels is abnormal. And this is what happened. And the Germans can't say that they weren't warned. They were warned about building an over-reliance by Poland, by France, by the United States, and not just annoying, you know, for a European annoying president like Donald Trump, Biden warned about this, Obama warned about this, Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada warned about this. Everybody did and they ignored it. So that is a problem. And it's an, it is a combined fault of, in this case, Germany's industry and politicians. There were similar errors made in Austria, Italy, and even the Netherlands made, played along with this. And this must be avoided in future because we can't just replace one inbuilt error with another one. Now, in the gas sector, this is looking a bit better now. The biggest gas supply to, to Europe and in Northwest Europe in particular, but overall even to the whole EU, is Norway. Now, we really don't need to fear that Norway goes hostile on Europe in a way that Russia has. They're a NATO partner and a lovely democratic and very friendly. And the other next one is the United States, another NATO partner. But, if, you know, but relations between the US and, and the EU aren't always great. If, if Mr. Trump became president again, who knows, maybe there'd be a gas tariff. And in Southern Europe, Algeria is the biggest gas pipeline supplier to Italy now. Now, Italy's and Algeria's relationships have always been quite amicable, but it is not a geopolitically stable region in North Africa. And Azerbaijan in also has some worries about it. It's proximity to Armenia, Iran, Turkey, and of course, Russian politics plays a role there as well. So Europe, in short, needs to be really, really careful that in rebuilding its supply chains in, in order to phase out all the Russian fossil fuel imports, that it does so in a way that they can receive the raw materials and the energy from partners that are geopolitically aligned in some form. Yeah, thank that you. Was an excessively long answer, sorry. 
No, no. As we've said with all of these things, that the questions can be simple, the answers can be complex. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, prior to even the war with Ukraine, when we look at European pricing, it, it, it's always been higher, whether it's gas or electricity in Europe. And so because of that, I'm, I make the assumption that you're driven to be more efficient just because the pricing is higher. But I'm just wondering now that the pricing is, you know, because of the war has increased significantly. Can you share with our audience the sort of the efficiency improvements and things that they've done? And, and I, I don't know if this is fair and if you can't do that. Can you talk about there's large corporations, but then there's SMEs. So if you have any information on that for our audience, that would be yeah. Yeah, you mentioned on pricing. Indeed, I mean, fairly high energy prices do give industry incentive to become more efficient. And I do not think it is an entire coincidence that places like Japan, South Korea, Germany are highly industrialized because, and they, I mean, especially Japan, South Korea, they have to import absolutely every raw material and energy resource from, from overseas, literally. So, and yet they make really good stuff. And it's, it's not necessarily countries and regions with abundance in natural resources that make stuff. Australia isn't particularly famous in making that much, neither is Saudi Arabia. So the, the, there is definitely a, an incentive to, if you have an energy co cost being high, that you add value to products. But of course, prices can't be prohibitively high. That's what we saw last year. And if, if, if this, if a crisis like last year happened to Europe successfully over two, three years, we would see deindustrialization. Companies would move away, especially the big ones and the small ones. SMEs would just go out of business and then people go into jobs that have less job security, less labor pride. You know, it's, it's actually a good example. The UK has seen some heavy deindustrialization of the last 30 years, although it's got a fully employed labor market. So it's not like the jobs are gone, but a lot of jobs have been replaced that have left. Let's say the auto industry, which used to be much bigger in the UK, they're gone. And people now work in a, in a logistics center or data center where there's no unions, there's much less job security and pride in the products you make. So now that's not necessarily price related, but you need to be careful that you don't destroy your energy by being prohibitively expensive on prices. Now, what can you do is of course, yeah, I mean, you, you need to hopefully have governments that try and secure that, that invest into global supply chains that ensure reliable imports of, of energy, whether they're fossil or renewable in nature at an affordable price. You have to incentivize investment locally into capacity. You have to incentivize into energy efficiency. Home insulation is so important here. It's actually, I'm bashing on Britain here too much, but Britain's home insulation rates are terrible and uh, they really are bad. I live in a lovely house in the UK. I really like it, but its insulation is appalling. And that, that needs to be incentivized. Italy, really good example. Normally it doesn't get a lot of positive economic headlines, but Italy, Italy has a 100% rollout of smart meters in households. Germany only 20%. Italy has replaced more gas boilers over the last two years than any other comparably big country, let's say Germany and France again. So that's because it's subsidized. So regulation subsidies help. And for companies, I think the main thing is you need to be savvy about energy. We've had this in the first podcast round as well. Energy isn't a given good that's free. And consumers, including companies, need to understand that. They, they need to understand how they use their, their energy. And if there, are, if there are options to reduce their consumption, your consumption without reducing output, then that is an option you should consider. And I think when energy is silly cheap, 
nobody thinks about that. We just switch on the light and then we leave it on all day and all night and whatever. But if it costs something, you need to think about it a little bit. And I think that's what people and companies need to do. They need to think about energy a little bit more. Luckily, that's happened over the last year. But of course, it would have been nicer, a lot nicer if this happened without a price shock and, and even worse, a war. I understand. Maybe it's too early, but is there efficiencies gained or is there a number that people are throwing out that has happened be- in the industry because of, of this? Or is it too early to actually tell that now? No, there's, yeah, there's, there's figures coming out. And uh, of course, we have to wait and see how they develop. But so overall, industrial gas consumption in, in Europe and in, in particular in Northwestern Europe last year was about 20% below 2021 levels. And this happened without a loss of industrial output. So overall manufacturing output in, in Europe was flat year on year, while their consumption went down by 20%. That is an amazing success story. These industry, the less amazing or the harder stuff is, the low hanging fruit has been taken. So the other stuff now will be more difficult, the investments, but I think there will be another invest efficiency gain of probably another 5%, maybe even a bit more this year. So I reckon that EU gas consumption by industry by the end of 2023, will be 25% below what it was at the start of the war. Which is, and I don't think that'll ever come back because that will be efficiency again. Now, some of it will come back as the economy recovers and so forth, but then new technologies come, come to place. Local renewable capacity will start to increase. The hydrogen gas, especially from electrolyzers, will start coming in. So I, I think this will be permanent. However, within industry, there are some, some headaches here as well. So if you take the really energy intensive industries, making glass, making cement, making aluminium or base chemicals, they really need gas as a feedstock. Yeah. So you can become more efficient, but you can't stop using it. And there, it really needs to be affordable. It can't be, I mean, it, it, it needs to be a sort of at a price level pre-crisis. And there in Europe, there are some worrying shifts. There will be some form of deindustrialization, some loss as it's called import substitution. So you, instead of making it in, in Germany, you imported it from China and then add value, hopefully again, or within a shift your facilities within the EU, maybe from a, an area that's landlocked and doesn't have access to, to cheap, abundant gas or power to a port area where there are such things. And this will cause internal shifts in, in Europe because Europe has lost energy. It, I mean, there is less available energy in terms of jewel around in Europe now than there was prior to the war. And for all the successes that we've discussed of LNG and the renewables and what, whatnot, it will take some time for that to come back, which means that demand destruction must be permanent. And most of it, luckily, I think can be done by, by investment and by becoming more savvy. But some of it, I think, will also come at a little form of loss of some energy intensive industrial manufacturing in Europe. Can I just one very quick point? You mentioned natural gas. I understand because of the price shock, but, but gas certainly impacts electrical pricing. Was there any efficiency improvements in the electrical side or was it mainly focused on the gas? Yeah. So gas is, has been indeed the focus, but and there has been also city efficiency gains. In fact, the, the, some, one of the EU response was to ask all EU member states to Im- introduce electricity saving mandates. Now, in a very EU level, this has been really weird because it's so the European Commission says every EU member state must put a 15% demand reduction law into place 
But no EU government needs to mandate to any of its consumers, household or industry, to reduce electricity consumption by 15%. So it's like, oh, what's going on here? Because the Germans would have never signed this or the Spanish just wouldn't have worked. So they said, well, put it into law and then figure it out. And the way what we figured out is, is, is subsidies. I, at least I think it's the only way, because otherwise, if you can't order people to do something, you need to do, ask nicely or, yeah. or bribe them to do it. Bribe is the wrong word, incentivize. Yeah, but perhaps you need a command economy like the Russians have, and then you, oh, no, I think we're going down the wrong direction now. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, what, what, what I'd like to come, come back to you on is you've talked about these efficiency gains. And again, a simple question, perhaps, maybe the answer is, have these efficiency gains, have they translated into a reduced carbon footprint industry? That's a really good question. So for industry, probably yes, by now. So yeah. if you take the heavy industry, because they, they have lost a little bit of their most energy intensive goods that they are producing, and even the stuff that they are still making, they're using more energy efficiently. So yes, but the power sector has increased its carbon intensity in Europe over the last year, because especially the Germans, but also Italy, Netherlands and France have brought back coal-fired units to, to replace some of the gas and to ensure that there's no blackouts. And on top of that in France, because they have their nuclear power outage problems that, that, that added to another, you know, Germany had a massive gas problem and caused by Russia. France had a massive nuclear problem caused by France, but it's that. And that has sadly been coal-fired. And then on top of that, the, the Germans this year will retire their remaining three nuclear reactors, which will, well, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what they'll be replaced by, but not by thin air. So and you, that's reflected in carbon prices, actually. I mean, the European carbon permit prices in late February hit you 100 euros per ton for the first time. Four years ago, they were at 5 euros, which, I mean, there was regulatory tightening, but also the fact that there's no recession and the increased carbon intensity of the power sector definitely played a role. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, having the, uh, you know, I think we talked in the first podcast, we're now distributed generation, distributed energy resources where you start localizing generation. And whether it's companies generating their own power or developing microgrids, things of that nature. I'm wondering is... Has anything spilled off because of this crisis? Has that encouraged more of that thinking and speeding up that thinking in Europe from your perspective? Definitely. I actually think this is one of the biggest longer term outcomes of this crisis for the energy sector in Europe that has flown past the headlines because it's too geeky, which, you know, for sure, yeah, not, not everyone needs to be an electricity expert, that's, but some people need to be. So, so there's definitely something going on there. So first of all, you saw that last year already, the Netherlands became the uh, Europe's biggest installer of rooftop solar. Now the Netherlands is a lovely country, but it's not the most sunny in the world. This year, it'll almost certainly be Germany because they've just wiped out most of their, their regulatory hurdles for installing rooftop solar. The Danes are already really good at this. So Northern Europe is going to put rooftop solar absolutely everywhere. The, so that's microgrid. Then the electric, in the electric vehicle space, most utilities, well, maybe not most, but many utilities across Europe are starting to develop plans of rolling out two-way charging systems for EVs in the next couple of years. So that when you don't drive your car, they can actually make money by selling, by using your battery by selling electricity, which will be really important. And then on a much bigger size, you've got PPA, so power purchase agreements that are happening on an 
almost epic scale now. Very good example is BASF. So Germany's big chemical company, which still has the world's biggest chemical facility in Germany. And they have a really big facility in Antwerp, place I mentioned before. They have bought a 50% stake in an offshore wind park in the North Sea, which, and this is, shows you how fast things go. This, this offshore wind park took FID in 2020. And it's going to be fully completed by the summer of 2023. So it'll take them just three years. 1.5 gigawatt. They're, they're 80% finished. So this week, as we speak, so last week, February, early March, they, they have installed the 100 turbine of 140. They're already supplying electricity so they can gradually increase as the turbines come in. It is unsubsidized. No contract for difference, no tender, no subsidy. It's a pure merchant facility. And BSF bought 50% of it because they're going to use that to supply electricity to their big chemical plant in Antwerp so that they're not exposed to the high wholesale grid costs. And, and maybe even if they have an excess electricity, they can sell it into it. And of course, they won't need carbon permits from this because it's an, a zero electricity source. So they still get free allocations for carbon permits from government. So they, in, instead of using them for buying gas or coal-fired generation, they can sell them. So, and the other part is they will start connecting these offshore wind parks to onshore electrolyzers so that on a Sunday morning when nobody works, but it's really windy in the North Sea, you drive that electricity through the electrolyzer and put it into the Dutch gas grid, which is already blending. And then you can store it as natural gas or green hydrogen. So on a micro level, rooftop solar, a smart grid level, two-way electric vehicle charging and reselling and companies like big companies actually, actually buying into power assets is all happening, but it is all happening because it is subsidized. Now, I mentioned that the offshore wind park wasn't subsidized. There is an indirect subsidy there as well, because the Dutch grid operator will pay the connection of, the, of that wind park to the grid. So that's like a direct incentive. Regulation. There's a lot happening there because it, it's, people are being forced to become creative about this. Interestingly, and I'll end it on that then, but interestingly, these were all plans that existed prior to the crisis. We knew that the more electricity, that the more renewables you create into the system, the more EVs you roll out, that the more the grid has to be adjusted and expanded. And, but these were things like, oh, let's do that in 2027. And then the war happened, Russia's invasion happened, and the gas cuts happened, and everyone thought, oh, where are those plans? Let's do that now. And that's, that's literally what's happening. Henning, this has been an informative episode on the industry and energy relationship in Europe. What is the biggest takeaway for our listeners? For industry, I think the concerns that this crisis will de-industrialize Europe are not accurate. I think they are, it's, that is not a major concern. There are solutions to this. They're already being applied, luckily, through very good, largely good, at least, government cooperation with industry, with consumers, with the energy sector. And they're being applied and it'll work. Take a while. As I said it before, I think well, come about 2025, things should have smoothened out, which means we have to bridge the space to there, which will be economically painful. And there, I think governments and investors should look out for the small and medium-sized industries because I know the big industries, they have the lobby groups, they have the ones that grab the headlines, the energy-intensive stuff, which I understand that they're worried as well, but the small to medium-sized businesses that don't have this sort of public platform and they don't have the cash to, to spend themselves out of this. They need a bit of love and attention in the next year or three. And I think that's important because that's where most of the growth and the jobs come from. Very reassuring takeaway there. John, what's your biggest takeaway? I think my biggest takeaway is reinforcing something that in 360 has thought for a long time. 
for industry, energy needs to be much higher up the strategic agenda. I totally agree. Dave, what's your biggest takeaway? Yeah, I think what I heard from Henning is that this crisis has actually rated government and business to work hand in hand and that it can't be reliant on just strictly government doing things. It's, it's government and industry working hand in hand yeah. doing this together. Yes. I think that's what I think is really, I, I'm hearing loud and clear in this whole process. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Henning, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Have a good week, everyone. Yeah, it's been really good. Thank you. Good discussion. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn post. See you next week.